The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Lord, we believe and we give you thanks for your grace, for your power, for your triumph, for your victory for us. In your name we pray. Amen. It's such a privilege and a blessing to worship with you and to be with you this morning. I, I just wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else last night. It's such an encouragement to me, and I know to you too, to be with brothers and sisters who believe. And we told a story yesterday, for those of you, uh, for those of you who were not with us yesterday, it was our big Easter celebration. And we tell a story, we tell a big story. It starts in Genesis and the, uh, all of our church participates in telling the story and we read how it was that God created the world and how he restored a fallen world through Jesus Christ, through his covenant faithfulness to us. And it's a glorious story of God's faithfulness. I've been thinking of a lot about this, uh, this way that God shares himself with us. You know, we, we take it for granted that it's kind of a story, but it's a real mercy, actually. God has given us stories to help us grasp what would otherwise be impossible to fathom. Imagine you had to preach a sermon on the resurrection. <laughs> it's not so easy. Instead, God in his great mercy has actually showed us who he is in such a way that we can stand in awe and yet sit in his lap. Who else could do that? And I invite you to stand in awe and sit in his lap. The magnitude of the resurrection is so big. It's the victory of God over sin. It's the confirmation of all his covenant promises, the triumph over Satan and hell. It's the first fruits of a new creation, and it's just so much more. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, uh, has a famous Easter sermon, which you can actually Google and find online. A lot of Orthodox churches are preaching that this season. And here's a little snippet. Chrysostom says, Christ is risen, and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. He probably could have gone on and on and on. But probably in that day, even 1,000 years ago, congregations got tired. But nonetheless, <laughs> he was excited and so are we. Such cause for rejoicing. But I know that one of the challenges in preaching about the resurrection is that for many of us, it's just hard to grasp. It's just hard to grasp. One example I kind of came to my mind, uh, I, and I swore I would never ever use this illustration in a sermon because it was the worst Easter sermon I ever heard, but that's probably why it sticks in my mind of a, of a rocket ship. And I'm not going to compare the resurrection to a rocket ship, but <laughs> I won't go that far. But do you ever see, you know, I was born in 1969, a long time ago, and it was uh, when, when uh, guys landed on the moon. And I'll never, never forget all these pictures of, you know, the rocket ships blasting off and all these people looking through binoculars. You ever see those pictures of people kind of looking through the binoculars and see the rocket go up way off there? That's how a lot of us think about the resurrection or respond to it. Like, wow, something really awesome is happening and I, I, you know, I can see it way over there. Really powerful and very distant. Do you ever feel like that's how Christian faith is for you? Really awesome and not close. You can see it if you look through binoculars, and that's kind of how we live our lives. That's 
you know, a lot of us kind of, that's the analogy of the kind of the Christian life is looking through binoculars, peering really hard, trying to figure it out, knowing it's really real, but not connecting with it. Wow, look at that. John's gospel helps bring it close because in the magnitude and the power and the awe of Jesus last week with all of its turmoil and all of its power and all of its unfathomable meaning, Jesus brings it close by making it personal. And if you can uh, sometimes just read, reread the end of the resurrection stories, you'll see that all of a sudden, Jesus comes close to Mary Magdalene in the garden. Mary was so close to Jesus. Mary's mentioned in the Gospels almost more than any other disciple. And Jesus comes close to her and calls her name. And he comes close to Thomas. Thomas the doubter. And he comes close to Peter. Peter the denier. And he addresses them by name. And he makes the power of the resurrection not something that they peer off through binoculars to see from a distance. What's so touching is how Jesus Christ comes to each one of us so personally, so differently, ministering to each one of us in the ways that were unique and precious to us, lifting us into the reality of the resurrection because it's about a relationship. You're not meant to know Jesus from a distance. You're not meant to know anything, actually, outside of a human relation. Did you know that? Human beings were not made to know anything apart from a relationship. We were created to know by being in relationship. And that's how Jesus consummates the power of his resurrection. He brings it to you. It doesn't make you look from afar. He comes to where you are. Well, that's the point I'd like to make this morning. Thomas had doubts. Thomas was the doubter. Thomas wasn't the denier. He wasn't Thomas the beloved disciple. He wasn't Thomas of Magdalene. He was his own person. And he had struggles that he had. And they were different than what Peter had. And they were different than what Mary Magdalene had. And they're different from what you have. You have your own personal struggles. Thomas had doubts. Who knows why? I mean, we could conjecture, but nonetheless, for all kinds of reasons, the crest of Thomas's experience of Jesus came short at that point. That was his flavor. All the disciples had their flavor of personal struggle as Holy Week in Jerusalem came to its vicious and terrible end in their minds. Um, you can witness the flight of the disciples from the garden Peter's denial, the sorrow of the women, the betrayal of G Judas. And it's interesting that uh, when Jesus comes to Thomas, he doesn't push past the doubt or bring condemnation or scold or overwhelm. 
On the contrary, the disciples had locked themselves in a room in, the cor- in a corner of Jerusalem, and Thomas was locked in there, not only with the door, but in his own doubt, locked up in his heart, protecting his heart from further wounding, which is what we do in our own ways. Thomas was distressed. He was so deeply affected because he had placed his faith in Jesus and was let down. And is that not the source of so much of our fear? We are desperately afraid that at the most important point, God's gonna let us down. And Thomas felt that way, and doubt was his way of protecting himself. Denial was Peter's way of protecting himself. Of course, it's not really protection. It's just locking it all up inside. But it feels a little bit safer than continuing to risk the vulnerability. So Thomas was locked in doubt, protecting his heart from further wounding. Doubt and skepticism are so great for that. Because they mask themselves, doubt and so they mask themselves as being very reasonable. There's every reason to doubt. And isn't that the killer with skepticism and doubt and even fear? They're very valid. You know, when, when the Egyptian army is chasing you, it's right to be afraid, yeah? And the enemy wants to stop the conversation right there. He would be very happy just to let Thomas die and will percolate the rest of his life in skepticism and let the acid, uh, you know, kind of eat away at him until he finally dies in doubt. That is not the last word. Faith, hope, and love are hard. They're expressions of real, authentic, and meaningful relationship, and when we do that, we're risking. And so Thomas says, yeah, I tried that, and it just didn't work very well, so I'm gonna lock myself up. But the beautiful part of our Easter story is that in his ministry to his people, there are no gates that can stop Jesus. That's the resurrection message. The gates of hell could not stop Jesus. The closed doors of the house could not stop Jesus. The locked gate even of Thomas' own heart, that also could not stop Jesus. In love and the power of his love, Jesus stands there before Thomas at the very center of Thomas's wound. Jesus didn't come preaching another gospel to Thomas. He came right to the doubt. Thomas laid down the gauntlet and he said, I will not believe unless I see. And there Jesus says, in his humility, he humbled himself and says, okay, I'll show you. It's such great love. Such great love that Jesus broke down all those barriers to stand face to face with Thomas himself. And in that moment, Thomas saw nothing else but Jesus. That's a theme that God has brought so powerfully home to us this week in Holy Week. For those of you who have been with us the whole journey through, the call during this Holy Week is to look and to behold Jesus. It's to look at him and be saved. Thomas, at that moment, saw nothing but Jesus, and he was saved. And Jesus, acknowledging Thomas's confession, 
does something so important and so personal for us. He turns his words, not to anyone who is in that room, but to you and me and to everyone who came after. And he said, blessed are those who do not see and believe. That's us. There's a direct blessing for each one of us this morning that's directly personal. How is it that believing saves What happens? Two people stand right next to each other. One believes and one doesn't. What's the difference? How is it that one can be saved? What does that even mean? This kind of belief is not just intellectual assent. And I'm not trying to say here that the content doesn't matter. If you read our gospel readings this morning, what we're supposed to believe is crystal clear. There is no saving faith apart from the faith which acknowledges that God sent Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, to die on the cross in our place and that rising again and ascending to heaven has forgiven us of our sins. That is saving faith. But simply intellectually gazing at it through the binoculars from afar is not what saves us. It's that kind of belief and faith and trust. And why is that? Because it's a personal relationship. Instead of thinking about it, imagining your heart opening like that. That's heart to heart. Our theme this whole year. That saves because when you're in a relationship with God Almighty, he saves. That's his nature. It's his character. It's what he does. When you're before him in faith, he saves you just like he healed people. They cried out to him and he said, what can I do for you? And they said, I'm blind and I can't see and he healed them because that's what Jesus does. And when you're in his relationship, when you're in his presence, he saves you. This kind of belief, it's the heart opening to Jesus himself, trusting, leaning in, resting in Christ. It's not a magic formula, it's love. It's the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ in you. Did you know that you are closer to Jesus now and he is closer to you than the disciples were when they were walking around with him in Galilee before the resurrection? Did you know that you are as close to Jesus now as Thomas was in that moment? Why is that? Paul the apostle says it this way. He describes this relationship of faith as nothing less than Christ in you, the hope of glory. He goes on to say, for you have died in baptism, he's explaining, and your life is hidden in Christ. It's like looking at the rocket versus being in the rocket. That's a terrible analogy, I'm not gonna use that again. Friends, every one of us eventually comes to the difficult point in our life where you cannot fake it anymore. Every one of us comes there, like Thomas. Thomas came to that point. Peter came to it. Everyone comes to it. Whatever faith they had faded away in the pressure of turmoil of Jesus' death. We are all sinful, Paul says, and fall short of God's glory, which means that all of us will come to that place where we fall flat and run out of options and can't get any farther. Everyone comes to that point. Jesus knows that. That's why he told his disciples before his death, you can't go where I'm going. 
he took on himself our sin. He destroyed sin for us and he rose again so that he could meet you at that very end of your road, at the very center of your doubt, at the point of your denial, at that worst thing that you did. And he stands there so that by looking at him there, you will be saved. And not just saved, lifted up, cleansed, forgiven, restored. I wonder if the Apostle Peter had Jesus' words to Thomas in mind when he wrote about this sort of faith in his letter, the first letter of Peter. This is what Peter says. Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I think Peter knew joy, that joy that comes from having been lifted up from the very dust of denial into the very presence of God in the face of Jesus Christ who said, Peter, I forgive you, I love you, I restore you. That was a source of Peter's joy. Not because Peter was amazing. Peter is amazing. But you're amazing. Peter was full of joy because he was forgiven and restored by the same Jesus who's offering himself to you this morning. Do you love him? Do you have this kind of relationship with Jesus Christ? When we baptized yesterday, oh, that was so wonderful. And did you notice when we baptized little baby Rocco and little Anastasia and big Andrew? <laughs> I wish he was here. It's not a general baptism. If you were listening carefully, we said each of their names. It has your name. It's for you. Jesus stands before you at your worst, not at your best. He says your name. He asks you to trust him and he wants you to gaze upon him like Thomas till you see nothing else. To where the presence of Jesus Christ is greater than your sin, it's greater than the people persecuting you, it's greater than your biggest challenge, it's bigger than your financial issues, your family crises, it wants all of that bad stuff to recede in the face of the only one who can do anything about all of that and you will be saved. You will experience the love and joy that is inexpressible because it's real, because it comes from a real Jesus who's really there and really asking you to trust him. And you will receive the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you've not encountered Christ in this way, then I want to invite each of you to embrace Jesus in faith. Acknowledge Jesus, like Thomas, as your Lord and your God. Invite him into your heart. Ask him to forgive your sins and be saved. It's what he did for Mary, it's what he did for Thomas, it's what he did for Peter, it's what he'll do for you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.